Good morning, church. It's good to have you here today worshiping together as a church body. Uh, if you're visiting today, special welcome to you. We're glad you chose to worship with us today. I will say this. Um, we did this with Mother's Day. We wanted to bless the mom, so today we wanted to bless the dads. So dads, as you came in, some of you got by me and I didn't give a chance to put this in your hand, but it is a 50-piece socket and tool set. Now, what a wonderful blessing for you. You seem like, man, you guys must be a rich church. No, we're not. These came at a very great deal, okay? And uh, not that we're being cheap with you, okay? But it was a great deal, and um, we just want to bless you back. You're all official trustees of the church now, so we expect you to show up at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, um, we just want to bless you, and thank you, dads, for what you do. Uh, if you're here today and um, your husband or your dad wasn't here, they're uh, somewhere else, grab one and take them for them, okay? And um, just let them know we love them. And so dads, special blessing to you. Thank you uh, for all that you do. It is not easy. Um, I'm not even going to compare. We're, we're not even going to go there about who's got it tougher between the moms and dads, right, ladies? Not even going to go there. I don't need any emails or anything, okay? Um, I don't know about you, but there are circumstances... Um, in which things just tend to fall apart in our life. You know, I was thinking over the past month at our house, whether it's windows breaking or paint is fading and chipping, or whether my roof leaks or our cars break down. Uh, it just seems like something is always falling apart, including our physical bodies. And so it's like, give me something to hold it together, right? And I, I heard this quote, and I believe it could probably have come from my own mouth. Um, One only needs... Two tools in life, WD-40 to make it go and duct tape to make it stop. Um, And that's that's what I would probably use. That could have been my quote, but it's not. Um, But we did want to bless the the fathers with a toolkit today, give you a couple tools. But there's more. We want to bless you um, with God's word today because that is the greatest tool that we could have. So men and ladies, you are not excluded from this message today, but... Men, I want to let you know, you, you got one set of tools given to you today, but we're going to open up the greatest tool that God could ever give us besides His, besides his Holy Spirit, and that is His Word, which is which His Spirit speaks to us through. So I'm going to ask you, uh, as you, as you have your Bibles in front of you, uh, to open them up to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as we begin, we're going to be starting a series on living in the final, in the final days or living in the last days. And uh, this series I'm, I'm excited about. Um, not, it's, and it's not one of those end-time messages, okay? Um, but the message that you're going to hear does reflect what's going on in the final days. And I'll explain a little bit more of that throughout the next couple of weeks. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. Pastor John Stott said this in regards to Paul, when Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. He said this, As Paul lies in his cell, a prisoner of the Lord, so he's in prison, okay, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul is still preoccupied with the future of the gospel. His mind dwells not on the evil of the times, but now on the timidity of Timothy. Timothy is so weak and the opposition is so strong. As Pastor John Stott says about this moment as Paul's writing this letter. 
So what does Paul write in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Let's read, starting in verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful, they'll be proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and they'll hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. As we look at that scripture, and I want you to think about what's going on today in the world. For those of you that love to turn on the news and you watch the world news or you pull out the newspaper, you pull up a magazine or maybe your tablet or something and that world news just starts feeding through, it it can be very negative, right? As we view the world news and even local news, people would probably question and maybe comment and say, are we living in dangerous and treacherous times? When you think about the violence we've seen, and we'd probably say, yeah. I would say especially even more for people without God. I don't even know how people do this without God. I really don't. But the last decades have brought fear and terror into the hearts of people around the world. And I'm not just saying in the United States, regardless of where you live, whether you're in the United States, Europe, Asia, whatever part of the world you're thinking of, okay, people have been rudely awakened to the perilous, treacherous, dangerous things that is going on. This world isn't the place that it used to be. And our children are now grown up in a time that we sit there and say, I don't remember being this way. And for our children, this is the norm. They're looking at it like, isn't this the way it's always been? No. Oh, there's always been dangerous times. There's always been uh, pain and, and perilous times. But it seems now it's more prevalent. Some of us can look back and say, I don't remember being this way. You know, it's it's difficult to imagine how things could have spiraled so quickly out of control. However, nearly 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul was writing the second book of Timothy here, the Holy Spirit was speaking to Paul saying, such a day is going to come. So as I speak to you, write these words. And by the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul wrote, he said this, look at verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be difficult times. Again, look at that verse. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days difficult times are coming. Those perilous times, those, those treacherous times. Now, this is sort of a, a, a broad term in the New Testament when you look at the word in the last days. Some people would say, well, the last days began with the beginning of the church at Pentecost. That's when the last days began. Some people say, well, when Jesus started his ministry, that's when the last days began. And other people say, well, when Jesus returns, right before that, those are the last days. Regardless, we could probably maybe assume as we feel and we look and we look at prophecies and we see what's going on in the world and we line things up with the Bible, there's there's probably a strong sense that we could be in the last days. But we don't know, do we? 
And to claim that we do know is false. You can't. I remember 1989, the guy wrote a book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 89. Here we are, what, 28 years later? I think he was wrong. I don't know how many books he sold, okay? The word know, when you look at that verse, the word know in this verse is a common word that's normally translated knowledge. Okay, it's, it's a simple Greek word. But in this verse, Paul used know, what's called in the present imperative tense. Okay? Now, I've, again, as I study this and try to learn some of this myself, to me, when I first hear that, present imperative tense. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I need to know what that means. It means that this message is so critical that it must be known. It must be recognized. And it must be acknowledged. It's just not like I'm throwing a fact out here. I'm telling you something. You need to know this. You need to acknowledge it. So if I were to say, did you understand what I'm saying? You would nod your yes, I understand. Good. This is the kind of know that we need to have. Not just one of, hey, I just threw something out there, and maybe some of you heard it, maybe you didn't. All of you need to hear this. This is what Paul's saying. It needs to be known. So as you read this, we have to understand that whatever the Holy Spirit is about to say is incredibly important. And that just hearing part of it is not going to work. It must be known and understood. So the question is, what, was, what must we know and understand? Paul tells us, in these last days, there will be what? Very difficult times, right? Difficult times. Some translations, if some of you are reading from a different translation, yours. Bible might say terrible. It may say perilous. The Greek word is halepas. Okay? That Greek word means, it actually is only used twice in the New Testament. I wouldn't bring it up, but when I come across a word that's used very rarely or in an incredible rare sense, I want to share that word with you. And this word here, when it's used, it's, it's to signify that it's spoken with words that were maybe hurtful or harsh, or cruel, or ruthless, or cunning, or wounding. And therefore, those words that come at you, those are hard to hear. That's what this word here, when we're talking about perilous or difficult, but it was also used in a sense to describe animals that are fierce. Animals that are ferocious, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and dangerous. When you look at this word, when he says terrible times, perilous times, we're talking about a fierce situation here. A dangerous situation. A harmful and hurtful situation. Paul uses that word with purpose. The second time, now this is what I thought was very interesting. The second time this word is used is in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 tells us this. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, in the region of Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. Now, don't you think about this. These men had terrorized their region so long, no one considered it safe to walk down this path, this road where these two men were. Incredibly fierce and scary, ferocious, uncontrollable, unpredictable, dangerous were these men that were possessed. But they represented no threat to Jesus, right? As Jesus is walking down this road, he knows what he's going to face. 
He knows the perilous time, the dangerous, the fierceness of these men. But he knew that he had authority over them as the Son of God. So instead of running like everybody else would run or avoiding that path that everybody else avoided, Jesus walked straight down it, stood up to those dark forces, and set those men free. It's a great passage, a great story. But when you go back to 2 Timothy 3.1, where Paul says, difficult, perilous, these fierce times are going to come, it's like Paul is hitting all, all caps. You know when you do that, you accidentally hit that on your phone or on your email, and you send that in all caps? The first time I did that, I didn't know that meant you're shouting at somebody by letter. Did you know that? Okay. Some of you know, if you put on all caps, that means you're shouting at them. I actually have a friend who all of his emails are always all cap. And I'm like, man, why are you always shouting at me? You know? And then I asked him that. He goes, oh, well, see, my dad used to always do all caps before his shouting at people. My dad always did that. I do that because my dad did that. I'm not shouting at you. Like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know this. But it's as if this were the moment, okay, Paul would have put these in all caps. If he's screaming to us right now, listen, you definitely must know that what I'm about to tell you is important, that in these last days, it's going to get ferocious, it's going to get fierce, it's going to be harmful, it's going to be dangerous, unpredictable, uncontrollable, high risk. The Holy Spirit warned us 2,000 years ago that the world would become that kind of place in the end of the ages. However, we have no idea when that's going to be, but yet we can see it and sense it. We have no idea how fast this world can spin out of control. But as we live in the world today, we're waking up to a harsh reality that this world is exceedingly fierce. When you don't know if you can go to a location to shop without somebody running you over, that's scary. But as Christians, we can't live in fear, can we? And it's not just that the world is falling apart with natural disasters when we think about what's going on with whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or fires, whatever it may be. But John Calvin said this. He said, We should note what the hardness or danger of this time is in Paul's view to be. Not war, not famine or diseases, nor any of the other calamities or ills that befall the body but the wicked and depraved ways of men. Is this John Calvin is saying, listen, I know what you're thinking that Paul's talking about all these crazy natural disasters, but we're talking about the depravity of men. We're talking about men's sinfulness. We're talking about how man has become fierce and chaotic. There are some who are looking forward to, you know, everything growing better in life. We think things get better as you go older. Some people think that as the ages move on, Things will get better and we'll move toward the millennium, right? But Scripture gives those people really no solid basis to rest upon that thought. Charles Spurgeon said, Apart from the second advent of our Lord when he returns, the world is more likely to sink into pandemonium than it is to rise into a millennium. So how would we as believers respond to all this? So again, not to be a Debbie Downer, Okay? Somebody answer that. <laughs> it's all right. I just called you out. Now you're embarrassed. We love you. If it makes you feel better, I was there worshiping and thinking, i got to put my phone on. Okay, so. <laughs> Happens to all of us. Love you. Okay, anyway. 
So how do we respond to all this? Perilous, difficult times. It happens, right? It comes our way. These moments happen in our life. How do we respond as Christians? I know. Because here's what a lot of people do. I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to stay in my house, close the blinds, hide from what's going on and around us, right? But is that the proper thing to do? No. Maybe we should never fly on an airplane again or go on vacation because it seems some places where you vacation, it seems that, that where you know, something bad could happen. If I get on a plane, somebody could use that as a tool of destruction. Is that how I should approach life? Maybe we should stop sending our children to public schools because at public schools, crazy things happen. See, there's a lot of thoughts as to what we could or should do, okay? And it's like something that's broken or leaking or needs fixing. We have a choice to engage it or to continue in it. When I've got something at home that's broken, I can be a big procrastinator. That sink is dripping. You know what? I just won't go near that sink. I'm just going to let it drip because I really don't know how to fix it, right? So I can just let it continue or I can take tools or get the help from somebody that knows what to do with these tools and engage it and approach it. And I believe that what God says, listen, you're in this world right now. And I'm not asking you to just turn your head and say, walk away from it because we can't avoid certain things. So maybe we need to engage it with the help of the Holy Spirit to approach it in a godly way. And instead of retreating in fear, maybe we accept the challenge to step forward as Jesus did when he encountered those demon-possessed men on that road. What terrified other people and made them retreat in fear is exactly what brought Jesus to action. The situation in today's world, I believe, calls us to action. And this is a time for us to step forward as Christians and use the authority that Jesus Christ gave us through His Spirit to preach the truth of deliverance and freedom from sin and to share the peace of God in a place where the devil has tried to create chaos and harm and hurt. The situation that exists in the world today, church, I believe it's our opportunity to let the power and glory of God shine through us as Christians. But how do we do this? How do we step forward? And as I'm looking at the scripture, and as Paul's bringing to our attention, we're living in perilous times. These are fierce times. We need to know this. But then he gets into what kind of world we're living in. As we're sort of, I was thinking about this the other day, going to a tournament, a ball tournament, uh, down in Finley. I was trying to remember which exit I got off. I didn't want to use my GPS. I was like, I was one of those old school men. Okay, like, don't need a map, don't need a GPS. I know my way there, right? So as I'm driving and thinking, okay, I know there's four exits. I think it's the first of the four, but there's another exit before, but I don't know if that's one of the four. So I was looking for the road marker. I knew at that exit there's a speedway off to my left on the uh, east side of the road. As I'm driving, I'm also looking for the blue sign that says gas or maybe have the speedway marker there or something like that. I was also looking for the Finley sign. Tell me how many miles to get to Finley. And then I saw, boom, Finley, 10 miles away. Okay, I know I'm within 10 miles of that exit, okay? 
and then another road marker. Now I'm about four miles. And then I see the blue sign with the speedway. Then I see the speedway sign up above. I had all these markers tell me I was getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And when I look at this scripture, I almost feel like the same thing as we're driving down a spiritual road, indications of last days, like it's getting closer. Here's a sign. Here's a sign that we're in the last days. And when you look at verse 2, look at that verse with me, where it sort of gives us some indicators of what it's going to be like. He says, people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful. They'll be proud. They'll be scoffing at God. They'll be disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Boy, does that sound at all like today? It it sounded like today back when Paul's writing this. The same thing was going on. But this verse presents a picture of people who are so self-focused, so self-centered, and self-consumed. They're self-absorbed people whose wants and needs are the very center of their own little world. And rather than live selfless lives, serving others, the first consideration is always what? Their own self-interest and desires. Everything else takes a backseat to what they want first. Paul clarified this truth when he started off saying that this, they'll be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of themselves. Now this phrase, lovers of their own selves, is, is very strange in the Greek language. Philatos is, is the word. It's a, it's a weird compound of two Greek words. And again, I want to share this with you because the first of these Greek words is philos, which is, uh, if you remember, like phileo, um, uh, love. Uh, Philadelphia. The city of what? Brotherly love, yeah. Okay. So that phileo, okay? So as we look at this Greek, these two Greek words, that first word phileo says that's a form of the word phileo, okay? So it's a love of, of something else, okay? But the word that it's attached to is autos, which is self. Now let's back up here. That phileo, that love, as you know, kissing is something you do with somebody else. You go give somebody else a kiss, right? You give your spouse a kiss, right? My, my mom and dad would give each other a, a kiss. And when I think about this, this is what you don't see. You don't kiss a mirror, right? Now, not, not to be humorous, but to think about this, okay? Kissing is something you do with somebody else. It isn't like I'm going to kiss a mirror and kiss myself. That, is, that doesn't work, okay? So when you think of this word philos, it would never be used to describe yourself. That doesn't make sense. Why would you use this word to talk about yourself? So when this word is compounded with that other word, autos, it's talking about describing a love and a fondness and a romance and attraction to yourself, which is really odd. But that's the picture Paul wants to say here. Listen, we have such a complete self-absorbance right now, a self-focus, a self-preoccupation with ourselves. We love ourselves so much we treat ourselves like royalty because I just, I love myself, right? And we're told, you've got to love yourself. In those last days, Paul saying society will be utterly consumed with itself. Look around the world at you today. Do you see a high level of selfishness and self-centeredness today? Just consider where you work, your school, the people you hang out with, family, yourself. Just look at our society, look at our culture. Listen, we don't need to be encouraged to love ourselves. That comes really naturally, just, you know, to love ourselves. But Paul continues and says this. If we look along with it, he says, he says, people will love only 
themselves, and what else? Money in those last days. Like the word philatus described, now the word is compounded with another word. And that word refers to a Greek form meaning silver or money. The word describes a love of money. So Paul says in these last days, people are going to be loving themselves and loving money. Ancient Greece, uh, this word was often used to depict a covetousness, a love of money, or someone who is uh, money hungry. More specifically, it was somebody who had a lot of money, okay? But they were so self-embellished that they were miserly about what they did with their money. They didn't want to give away. If, let me give you a, a picture from a story you might think of, okay? A Christmas story, which would be Scrooge. That's sort of the picture we're talking about here. By using this word, Paul lets us know that at the end of the age, a lost society that we'll be living in will be so self-centered, they will spend ridiculous amounts of money on themselves. Now, being primarily preoccupied with themselves, people will spend on themselves, constantly searching for new ways to make themselves happy by spending more money on themselves. Now, I was reading this, article, and I want to share this with you. It says, years ago, a newspaper featured this article about a woman named Brenda Blackman. She enjoyed some major success. She taught this class, listen, entitled, How to Marry Money. Now listen to what it says. This course attempts to show men and women how to marry rich. By the way, it costs $39 to sign up for this class, okay? In the course, Blackman offered hints, such as how to search through your prospective mates' checkbooks to study their deposits and then assess their income levels. She built her students' confidence by leading them a chant several times through the lecture. This is what she would say, and she wanted everybody to repeat. I want to be rich. I deserve to be rich. I am rich. I was born to be, born to be rich. Ooh, okay. In one class, Blackman was asked by a woman if it was all right, listen, to settle for a man whose income was about $100,000 a year. Some of you right now are saying, yeah, right, okay. This is her answer. No way. Was that, was her reply. She goes, well, what if he was perfect in every other way? Answer was, well, if he was in his peak earning years and he has maxed out at $100,000, forget it, is what Blackman's reply was. When someone asked her about the place of love in such relationships, Blackman said that finding a mate with that much money is the hard part. Learning to love that person is easy by comparison. She said this, How could you not love someone who's doing all these wonderful things for you? Interesting, isn't it? By the way, that teacher, Blackman, she's single. Just throwing that out there, okay? (laughs) Ironic, huh? When you look at the world around you, Church, do you see the society and our culture moving in that direction? Self-absorbed? Self-consumer, self-centered? Certainly God wants his people to be blessed and prosperous, right? But as riches increase, we must remember that the Bible warns us. If riches increase, as it says in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. 
If God blesses you, praise God that he's blessed you. But when we set our hearts upon the riches, that's when we get in trouble. Now this could be a whole another sermon about what? The love of money. We can get into that, but we're not going there today. Paul's saying our goal is not self-consumption, but to use the riches that God has given us to propel, to share the gospel around the world, in our community. So how do you know if you or I have fallen into this trap of self-centeredness that seems to be so prevalent in the world today? So let me ask you this question. If the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and tells you to give, can you say no to the things that you are planning to buy so that you can obey the Spirit's prompting? That's a good, that's a good test right there. Or do you find that you regularly hold yourself and your desires above what the Lord's calling you to do in helping others? That's another good question. So here's the thing. If your first response is to obey the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit puts upon your heart, you know what? You need to bless somebody else. You need to help somebody else. And that's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, that's, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that another day. That's what I'm talking about. That question right there. If you find it hard to say no to your own comforts and regularly ignore the invitation of the Holy Spirit to help somebody else, it's a sign that the attitude of the world is edging its way into your heart. And you need to have a conversation with God about that. God, am I becoming self-centered? God, am I becoming self-consuming? Am I able to help and bless others? Or is it all about me? We need to pray and ask God to help us in our hearts be free from materialism and to keep the gospel as the greatest and the highest priority in our life. Now, here's a tough question to ask. What does my own spending reveal about me? That's a tough question to ask, isn't it? Have I fallen into the trap that the world is in by spending more and more all the time? It's another good question to ask. Open up your Bibles to John 14. Turn there with me, please. John chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 14. Jesus is talking with his disciples. Again, I love these chapters in the book of John, as these are some of the last words that Jesus is going to be saying to his disciples before he goes to the cross. These are important messages. And in John chapter 14... In verse 17, and actually, um, I'm going to back up a little bit here. Let's start in verse 13. Jesus said this in chapter 14, verse 13 of John. And now I'm coming to you. I've told them many things while I was with them so they would be filled with my joy. Verse 14. I've given them your word. And the world hates them because they don't belong to the world just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. I love this. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father for his disciples, for us believers. He's praying for us. They're not part of this world any more than I am. Look at verse 17 now. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me in the world, I'm sending them the world, and I give myself entirely to you so they might also might be entirely yours. As Jesus is teaching his disciples here and sharing with them, 
in the last days, he gives this message to him, talking about how the Holy Spirit, he's praying to God, asking his Holy Spirit to come upon his believers. And he's, he's saying, when I'm gone, I will send another helper, another counselor, my spirit to be with you. That's a mighty statement, because never before had the Holy Spirit ever dwelt in anybody. Jesus was declaring that for the first time in human history, the Spirit of God would come down from heaven and was going to literally come inside believers and abide there in believers. His presence would be no longer temporary or fleeting, as within the Old Testament when you saw the Holy Spirit sort of come and go and fall upon people. The Holy Spirit was going to be taking up residency and dwelling immediately among his believers. So church, think about this. When you've confessed with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, when you've asked him to come into your life, his spirit dwells in you. It's not a tent. It's not a fixer-upper. It's not a hotel. He's taking up residence in you to dwell, to stay. Your heart was never meant to be like a hotel come and go or a tent, just tear it down and rip it up and move it somewhere else. God never intended for the Holy Spirit to come for a short time and just be a guest in your life. The Holy Spirit has come to stay as a permanent resident inside our hearts, to be there, to dwell there, to instruct, to guide, to convict, to convince. The Holy Spirit has an incredible job. And He doesn't view you as a fixer-up and grabbing a few tools to come along and just help you on little things. He's come to live within us and to give us the tools to spiritually grow and shine for Him. So He gives us what we need to live differently in the present time, Himself. God's chosen us to be a part of this special generation so that we can shine for His glory, not ours. To go into places of darkness and to bring His light, not ours. We need to pray that we don't allow a love of self or a love of money to direct us. We need to pray that God's Holy Spirit directs us. God, help me not to be so self-centered. God, help me not to be so consumed with, with my finances that it overrules everything that I do. We are fully equipped by the Holy Spirit to glorify God without compromise in these difficult times. You have the tools you need. I have the tools I need. So when we look at this scripture, and we're going to continue to go through this scripture in 2 Timothy 3. And not just discover, well, what are these times going to be like? But as Christians, how do we live in these times? Well, as we see this world becoming self-centered and self-consuming, guess what? As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we live opposite of that. And being, instead of being self-centered, we become selfless. And being, instead of self-consuming, we become giving and generous. And we'll learn more as we go along in this scripture. Worship team, would you please come forward? Now, if you're a fan of the sport, golf, I want to share this quick story with you before we close in worship song here. If you're a fan of, of golf, and you maybe have been enjoying this weekend's U.S. Open. Now, I need to be honest with you and share this. I'm not a huge golfer, okay? Some of you know that. If you live on the golf course, I might have hit your house. Sorry, okay? I golf like twice a year. Fellowship of Christian Athletes, we have a golf scramble. That's one. 
and maybe the day before to practice, that's two. Okay? That, that's about it. Now, if you want a, a good laugh, invite me out sometime to golf with you. Okay? Uh, but I'm a competitor. I will work my hardest. I'm just not that good. Okay? But I do enjoy great stories. And this one is about Phil Mickelson. And if you know anything about him, uh, he became a professional golfer in 1992. So he's been playing professional golf for 25 years. I want you to think about this guy for a moment. A World Golf Hall of Famer in November of 2011. His nickname is Lefty, as some of you may know who are golf fans, because he's a left-handed golfer. He's won the Masters three times, the U.S. Open once. He's played in the Ryder Cup nine times, winning twice. He has 40, listen, 42 career wins. Many other awards along with that, okay? He is a millionaire. And he has a lot of years ahead of him. Now, why do I share all those stats with you? Because you need to understand the background of him before I share this next story about, about him, okay? Now, recently he had a decision to make in regards to playing this weekend's U.S. Open. Some of you know about this. He chose not to play in this major event because... His daughter's graduating from high school. Seems like a simple thing, right? This is the first time, though, he's missed the U.S. Open since 1993 when he didn't qualify. So for, what is that, 24 years, he's never missed it. Never missed it. And he'd been holding out hope that maybe there's potential storms that were going to come over over Wisconsin, and uh, there might be a long enough delay that he could still make the tee time, get to his daughter's graduation, see that, then fly out and get to the tea time. But the way the forecast was going, he wouldn't make it. It didn't look like that forecast was going to hold to go from California to Wisconsin. So, again, why am I sharing this with you? Because it's Father's Day. His daughter's graduating from high school. She's the class president, and she's giving the speech. Think about this, dads. Could we be so self-consumed that it's about me or about the money I can make at a golf outing? Or should I be a dad and not be so consumed with myself or the things that I can get and be there for my kid? Critics, and I'm going to say this again, critics gave him a hard time. I heard one guy say, it's just a high school graduation. Just wait till she graduates from college. Make sure you're there for that one. Wow. Wow. He holds the U.S. Open record for six runner-up finishes. Six runner-ups, okay? How many times do you get tired of finishing second, okay? So in the back of his mind, he could be thinking, man, this is the only thing that's keeping me from a career grand slam, which is a big thing in golf, okay? In other words, critics are saying, forget about your daughter. It's about you, Phil. Go do it. Why would you want to miss this, Right? This is what Phil said two weeks ago when he first revealed the conflict. It's a tournament that I want to win the most. And the only way to win is if you play and have a chance. But then referring to his daughter, he said this. But this is one of those moments where you look back in life and you just don't want to miss it. I'll be really glad that I was there and present at her graduation. Now, when when I heard that, I appreciate right there a moment where a father who said, listen... I have a moment for a lot of glory on me, a spotlight on me, 
and maybe make some more money. But that father turned it down because he loved his child. And he said, I'm going to be there for my child. We're living in a world today where you don't see a lot of that. I encourage you, church, that we do the same. That we learn to turn the spotlight off ourselves and stop going for the gain and start becoming, looking to others. Because that's what our Heavenly Father did for us, didn't He? Our Heavenly Father, Creator of all, sent His Son, His Son, out of the throne room of heaven to this place for us. He gave up the spotlight and the glory of heaven to come down and become human, to be crucified and tortured on behalf of our sins. That's love. That's self-sacrifice. That's a Heavenly Father that says, this is how I do it. You do the same. You do the same. How do we live in times like this? We reflect the Father's love in being selfless, and being generous, and loving others. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being an awesome and mighty God. We thank you for loving us so much that you gave of yourself. We are living in perilous times, difficult times. And God, sometimes it's like, what do we do? How do we live in this kind of world when all this is going on? God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving through Paul to write this, to say, this, this is what you're going to see. And God, I thank you that you gave us your Holy Spirit to know then how to live in the chaos of this world. God, I ask that you help this church right now. Help us, Lord, to be selfless. Help us to be generous to others and helping others. God, I thank you already. I've seen so much of that in this church. People reaching out, making meals for each other, praying for each other, calling each other. God, thank you for this church. We're not done because your spirit is alive in us. Help us continue to obey you and being selfless and loving to others. God, thank you for your gift, your son, Jesus Christ, to us. We worship you now, Lord. And all we do and we sing.